Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. What do you think is more important, truth or love? Is it more important in a local church like ours that we be doctrinally pure or that we have a sincere affection for one another? And your first impulse might be to lean toward one or the other of those, <laughs> to say, well, 1 Corinthians 13, if we don't have love, what does our doctrine matter? Or you might, on the other hand, be inclined to say, well, if we don't even have the true Jesus, we can love each other all we want. It means nothing. Well, you're right and you're right. You're both right. <laughs> to ask whether it's more important that we be committed to truth or that we love each other is like asking what's more important, food or water? You need them both. Or it'd be like saying, we have to amputate one. Are we going to remove your brain or your heart? <laughs> And really, for the Christian, your brain is your commitment to the truth and your heart is your love for others. Which are you going to give up? It's essential that we have both truth and love individually, but also as a local church. And we have to have them in the right proportions. We have to hold to both of them and they have to be interwoven together and you can't rip one off. It won't work to tear that off of this one or this off of that one. It's simply not going to work. You have to have both of them. Jesus said to his disciples, you have to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. You can't just be a serpent wise in your doctrinal knowledge. And you can't just be a dove full of love and sincerity. But he says you have to be both of those. Uses both animal metaphors for us. Maybe to make it more practical, you could even think historically when World War II took place, Neville Chamberlain, the prime minister of England... Well, simplify, but you could say that his heart was in some ways full of love. He wanted to see peace. He didn't want there to be another world war. And therefore, he pursued a course of diplomacy with Hitler and Germany to avoid one. He wanted peace. He was a peace-loving person. But his downfall was that he was disconnected from reality. He thought he could make peace with Hitler when that was not a possibility. So he had love, but not truth. On the other hand, and this is very much a simplification, but Hitler did not have truth, but he had a more realistic view of a few things, such as his own intentions or Germany's readiness for war. But he had no love, and that's an overstatement, no love whatsoever. So we don't want to be Chamberlain or Hitler in this case. You have to have both as a Christian, not one or the other. These are conjoined twins. They cannot be separated. Imagine what would happen to us tomorrow if we had lost either of these precious pearls. So, as a local church, if we were the most doctrinally pure church on this planet, guarded completely against even the slightest bit of doctrinal error, if you had a massive knowledge of the Bible, biblical theology, systematic theology, and you could sniff out a false teacher when they're still down the street, if you were pure in your doctrine, which is good, 
But if you didn't have love, we would not only be a bad church, but we'd be two or three bad churches because you would immediately split and then you would split again. Love is what holds us together. Truth and love. Imagine on the other hand, if tomorrow we became the most loving, sincerely affectionate church on this planet, serving each other in deed and truth, meaning actively, but we gave up that rare pearl of pure doctrine and we had no discernment. Our love would turn saccharine, it would turn sweet like something that's going bad, something that's rotting. We would lose the gospel itself. We would end up having nothing to offer to anyone at all, each other or outside the church, even if our intentions were good. And confident false teachers would come in and we would be tossed to and fro depending on who's here. So which is more important, truth or love? Yes. Yes. We can't make a choice. Jesus himself came full of grace and truth. Love for others, graciousness, truth in his dealings with people. And we have to walk not in one, but in both of his footsteps, truth and love. And that is John's message to you today in this passage. And because it's John's as an inspired apostle, or apostle of an inspired text, it is also God's message to you. So let's read this. We're in 1 John chapter 4. And we are starting in verse 13. By this we know that we abide in Him, it's God, and He in us, because He has given us of His Spirit. Now here's truth. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. Now here is love. So, we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Now, you may remember that the letter of 1 John is structured unusually. It's not like Paul, point A, point B, subpoint. It's not like that. Instead, he takes three primary points, three tests by which you may know if you're truly a believer. There is the doctrinal test. If you're truly a believer, you will believe the essential true facts about Christ. You won't deny his deity, that he's God, for example. Then you have the moral test. If you're a true believer, then you will practice righteousness. You will not live in an ongoing lifestyle of sin. And then there's the social test, which is if you're a true believer, you will imperfectly but characteristically love other believers who are around you. Now, what's going to happen in our passage is that John is not going to tell us anything new about any of those three tests, but instead he takes two of the tests. He usually does just one, then the other, then the other, but here he takes two of them, the doctrinal and the social, your commitment to truth and your commitment to love, and he brings them together to show you 
that they are inseparable, that you have to have both of them. Whoever confesses the truth about Jesus in verse 15, God abides in him and he in God. So there's doctrine, there's truth. But verse 16, whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. There's love, truth, love, and it's the same group, those who abide mutually in God. So what we're going to see today is we're going to take these two elements, truth and love, and John is going to tell us two things about them that unite them. Number one is that they are both divine in their source. They come from God. And number two is that they are both definite in their matter. Divine, definite, it's to make it easier to remember, but you'll see what we're talking about as we get into this. So let's look at truth and love, how they're woven together by John here, first by looking at their divine source. Although there are several things in these verses that when you first look at them, you might wonder, how are these even connected together? But these four verses do have three times repeated, once, second time, third time, the very same concept. It is a concept of mutual indwelling, meaning a person abiding in God and God abiding in the person. Once, twice, three times. It's there at the outset. By this we know that we abide in Him, God, and He in us because He's given us of His Spirit. So mutual indwelling. Then verse 15 asserts as we move to another topic, truth. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, there's the common element. God abides in him and he in God, mutual indwelling. Then we move to love suddenly, but notice the common element again. Verse 16, whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. So John's not lost his mind. He has several different concepts he's dealing with, but they're united by the sense of a mutual indwelling in God. Three times in four verses. Now notice especially... Who, according to the Apostle John, partakes in this mutual indwelling, before we consider that further, it is whoever confesses and whoever abides in love. Now let me ask you, is John thinking about two separate groups of people here? Over there you have the people who confess the truth about Christ. They confess that he's the Son of God. Over there. And then over there, you have another group, whoever abides in love. So those are the truth people, and those are the love people. <laughs> we know that John does not think of these groups separately. Why? Because he predicates the exact same thing about them. They mutually indwell God, and they mutually indwell God. In other words, same group that we're considering. Those who are committed confessing the truth and those abiding in love, they're the same group. They're just one group, the same one. So, truth or love? It has to be both. And if you are a Christian, it will be both in your life, albeit imperfectly. Now, why this should be so of genuine Christians, these two things, it shouldn't surprise us. It is because God himself, is he a God of truth or is he a God of love? According to the New Testament, he is a God of truth and he is a God of love. Both of them. 
So when you take this idea of mutual indwelling, he says it three times. You're in God and God's in you. How is that possible? I don't know. This is sort of a mystery here, but we call this a union. There is a union or a communion that we have with God. And the point of this picture, you being in God and God being in you, it's not spatial. God is a spirit. Because that would be impossible for you to be in and it's in you. Can't do that. However, the picture here is simply your life as a Christian is so interwoven with the life of God, it's difficult to separate. We're not saying you are one with God like Jesus is, nothing like that. But if you're a Christian, it's not like you just said a prayer and that's added on to you as life insurance, fire insurance or whatever. Your life is brought into the life of God. You have a union with God in Christ. So you can't just stand over there, now you're saved, and keep God over there. If you really want to know Christ, if you really want to be saved, your life becomes interwoven with His in a remarkable way. So much so that He can describe it as your relationship with Him is so close, you are in Him and He is in you. <laughs> How do you get closer than that? Therefore... None of us should be surprised that truth and love are emphasized for Christians because if you really have a relationship like that with God, and He is a God who is truth, and He is a God who, even our passage says, is love, how are you going to come away from such a close relationship with Him and not be truth and not be love? It's impossible. It's like Moses, you remember when he ascended Mount Sinai and he stood face to face with the glory of God and when he returned down the mountain, his face was glowing because he spoke so close to God that God's glory reflected off his face. And John is saying the same thing happens if you are in God and God is in you. If you have that close of a relationship with God, his truth and his love will reflect off your face. Both of them. Can't just be one, but both of them. There's a proverb in the Old Testament, make no friendship with a man given to anger, nor go with a wrathful man, lest you learn his ways. More positively, the same is true of your relationship with God. If that's how close your relationship with God is, you will learn his ways. You will be committed to truth because He is. You will see Him committed to truth, and you will be. You will be committed to love because He is. So you can see why the Christian will live a life marked by truth and love, because that's exactly the sort of God that we are united with. Our truth and love have a divine origin. Now, if you have that in your mind, it will help you make more sense of the first verse we looked at. Because you may wonder, why does the Spirit even enter into this passage? He doesn't say anything else about Him after verse 13. Look here. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us of His Spirit. Well, number one, you cannot see God's Spirit. So you may wonder, how does God's Spirit being ours confirm to us that we mutually indwell God? can't see him. You can't hear him. So how is that any sort of proof? Because he says, by this we know. How is that any sort of proof to you? Well, John is saying what we've already said. 
How does God dwell within you? By his spirit. And what sort of a spirit are we talking about dwelling inside you? A hateful spirit who loves falsehood? May it never be. The spirit of the living God is a spirit of truth. Literally, that's what John calls him. And he's a spirit who produces love in us. He's still talking about this mutual indwelling, but the spirit is the person of the Godhead who uniquely indwells us or is presented that way in Scripture. Think about it. He is the spirit of truth. Do you have the living spirit of God inside you? Then you will be true because he is. Chapter 2, John wrote, But you have been anointed by the Holy One, meaning you have the Holy Spirit inside you. And what's the consequence? You all have knowledge. The Spirit illumines your mind, teaches you truth. Again, he wrote, but the anointing that you received from him, that's the Holy Spirit, abides in you and you have no need that anyone should teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true, Holy Spirit is true and is no lie, just as it's taught you, abide in him. The Spirit is a spirit of truth. Just to make it absolutely clear that when John thinks of the Spirit, he thinks of truth, you can remember what Jesus had said to his original followers. He said, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. If you have the Spirit of God within you, he abides in you, you will not ultimately be led away by false teachers from the truth. Maybe temporarily for a time. The elect even can be deceived for a time. But if you have the spirit of truth within you, that is a protection as we have seen. You will be committed to the truth, the essential truth about Christ, because the Holy Spirit is. If the spirit indwells you, on the other hand, you cannot be just committed to truth because another role of the Holy Spirit is to produce love in you. You may remember from Galatians chapter 5, the fruit of the Spirit. In other words, simply the things that the Spirit will produce in your life if He is in you. Do you know what the first fruit of the Spirit is? It is love. He is a spirit of love who produces love in you. And in a remarkable verse in Romans chapter 5, verse 5, if you remember this one, we're told that God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. That is referring, I think, to God's love for us. The Spirit assures us of that fact. But here again, you see a connection between the Holy Spirit and love. So the Holy Spirit inside you, is He a spirit of truth? Or is he a spirit of love? Is he a spirit who keeps you committed to doctrinal purity? Or is he the sort of spirit who produces the fruit of love in you for others? He is both. Not one or the other. So how will you know, verse 13, that you abide in God and God abides in you if you can't see the spirit? Because you can see what he produces in you. Namely, you will confess that Jesus is the Son of God because He leads you into the truth. And you will abide in love because He has a Spirit who produces love in you. 
you may say, well, what is the practical use of a passage like this one? It's nothing new. It's nothing that we haven't heard. It's simply taking truth and love and combining them together and making it clear they're from God. Here's the practical use. You're aware that all of us are very different. And if you're married, you're very aware of that. But that's true for everyone. We all are different in our personality, in our temperament, in our strengths, in our spiritual gifts, in a variety of ways. And some of you right now do not have a massive problem being committed to the truth. And we praise God that that's true. We need people who are doctrinally pure. We need people who go and learn terms like general and special revelation. And all of us need to be growing in that, but some of you will find that much easier than others. Some of you will find that reading comes easy to you and thinking critically, and you will be able, by God's grace, to discern false teaching as it's trying to slip through the doors. You'll be able to smell it. You'll be able to sense it. You'll hear something that's off. Maybe God will encourage you to go and read deeply in church history, to see heresies and errors in the past, and to attach them to errors today. Some of you may be gifted apologists apologetically, that is to defend the faith, to study Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons and cults and other false teaching, to be prepared to give a defense for the hope that is in you. We all have to do that, but some of you will find that by God's gifting and your natural proclivities, you will lean in the direction of truth. Praise God. It's because the spirit of truth is in you. But... You can't just have truth. Maybe you already are aware of this in yourself. You say, I am committed to truth, but I struggle loving others. Anybody like that? We all struggle with that somewhat. But here's the main problem. If you are committed to truth but struggle with love, you're not going to be able to read your Bible, which will be a problem if you love truth. <laughs> because you're going to find passages of the Bible where you see the love of God clearly displayed. Sometimes you will see God being patient and merciful to people you would have a very hard time being patient and merciful to. And you say, Abraham's giving his wife away. Strike him down, God. That's the right thing to do. You will see God being long-suffering with David in his sin and in the New Testament with the disciples who abandoned him. You will see the commands in the New Testament that we love one another with the affection of Christ Jesus. You'll say, sure. <laughs> well, that's hard to do. You, according to this passage, need not just to confess that Jesus is the Son of God, but if you have the spirit of love in you, you need to make a concerted effort to grow in love. Real affection for other believers, a genuine care for them. The same is going to be true for the rest who are here, who are going to lean more naturally toward love and compassion. And maybe you just have a sympathetic sense that's on overdrive and you were this way before you knew Christ. If a squirrel is suffering, your heart aches. So when you see people suffering, compassion comes easily to you and sympathy. But perhaps it comes so easily to you that you don't want to hurt someone's feelings by telling them they're wrong. And especially today, with arguments about love is love, except the definition of love you have, which is based on the Bible, is going to be especially difficult. 
if you're someone who really wants to love and be sympathetic, it will be difficult for you to stand for things that are true but are not considered loving by others. But do you just have the spirit of love inside you? Do you not also have the spirit of truth? Do you not also confess that Jesus is the Son of God? You cannot have one without the other. That is John's entire point. And the reason you cannot be satisfied leaning just in one way naturally is because you're not naturally anymore. You have God Himself within you by His Spirit. And you abide in God. And whatever of these two you struggle with, you've got to shore that up. Because God is there. Look at his example. Let him transform you. Be changed by the Spirit. You don't feel love? The Holy Spirit produces the fruit of love in us. Truth and love, not one or the other. And if I can throw one more point in that I don't have in my notes, but is important. Listen, bear in mind, not everyone leans in the same direction you lean, and that's good. It's not bad. You will feel like it's bad because they don't love truth enough. Because you love truth, or they're not loving enough because you're loving. We need each other. Not only do we need to be balanced in our own lives individually, but even as a church and in marriages and in our relationships, we should value the differences because they're compensating for our own deficiencies. We need to be a people corporately of truth and love together and value when people differ from us in their leaning. So, truth and love. They have a divine source, both of them, equally. Now, John has one more thing to say here, and that is, not only do they have a divine source, truth and love, but both of them are definite in their matter. They are certain. You can see that right in our text. If you look, for example, in verse 14, he's considering truth. And how does he put it? And we, the apostles have seen and testify that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Why say it that way? We have seen, and He uses a word for see in the Greek that's not just a passing glance, but we've really focused. We've seen and we testify as eyewitnesses that the Father sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. You probably remember that these were the sorts of words that opened this letter. In 1 John chapter 1, just those first verses, this is the point John made. He said, that which was from the beginning of Jesus' ministry, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we looked upon, same word as our text now, and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we've seen it and, same word as ours, testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Those first verses of this letter were meant to give you a sense of the definiteness of the truth that the apostles have conveyed to us about Jesus. It's not hearsay. They were, we've seen it with our eyeballs. We looked at it. We touched it so that you can have a confidence that we're not making this up. We have seen... And we testify to what we have seen as eyewitnesses. So there is a definiteness to the truth that Jesus is the Son of God sent from the Father to be the Savior of the world. Now you may wonder, how did they see that the Father sent the Son? 
They didn't see him pre-existent before his birth. They didn't see when he was conceived in Mary's womb by the Holy Spirit. The apostles didn't see the virgin birth. They weren't there at the very beginning when he was born. How did they see that the Father sent him, and how do they testify to that as eyewitnesses? It's because they saw all of the clearest evidences that this was true. John in his gospel in the first chapter says, we have seen Jesus' glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. Jesus did miracles or signs. When we saw the signs he did, we concluded he has to be from the Father. When he changed water into wine, John comments in his gospel, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. That's what John and the we in this passage have seen. God's glory in Christ. John says the same thing that the apostle Peter, who was his companion, says in his second letter. He says, for we didn't follow clever, cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. This is important what did he see that he testifies to? It's that the Father sent the Son. He saw the signs that the Son did. He saw no one can do what the Son is doing unless he's truly the Son of God and concluded, you are from God. He saw the transfiguration where Christ reveals his glory openly. He saw Jesus say things. How can he know that? He saw Jesus do things. How can you do that unless you're from God? So he concludes, the Father sent his Son watched him go to the cross to be the savior of all those in the world who trust in him. That is an important point as we talk about truth here. It's very definite. They saw it. They testified. It's true. It's definite. Notice, he is specific in what truth he's talking about. There are some people by personality who lean toward confidence. We're not talking about socio-political matters, which are incredibly important, cultural evaluations, which really matter a lot, the scientific moral backing of vaccines, which is incredibly important. But when we're talking about truth in this passage, he tells us what truth he's focused on. The kind of truth that's definite, that you have to commit your whole life to, and if it's low, you've got to increase it, is not just a confidence in speculation. It is a confidence that the Father has sent Jesus 2,000 years ago. He's truly divine. He's the Son of God. He's the only Savior of the world. So truth is definite truth. We've seen it testify that that is true. And you can die on that basis and be safe now, that might not be surprising. Of course, the truth of Christ is definite. But let's bring in something that is surprising. Let's bring in love. Not only are they both divine in their source, but they're both definite. Love is also definite in this text. Notice this, verse 16. So we have come to know and to believe, looks just like what we read about the truth, two verbs, seen, testify, know, believe, the love that God has for us. John sees both truth and his perception of God's love and therefore his love for others as definite facts. 
They're not abstract, fuzzy concepts. They're not immaterial with no practical application. John doesn't say, truth, let's be strong in knowing the truth. But when it comes to love, it's whatever you think it is. <laughs> he says, no, we've come to know and to believe God's love for us. He doesn't soften it at all. It's very definite in his mind. There is something solid and concrete in our love even for each other because it's based on our solid conviction of God's love for us. Can you say this about God's love? Maybe you can say this about Christ. He is the Son of God. You have confidence in that? Good. Can you say this with confidence? I know today that God loves me. I know and I believe with all my heart, as confident as I am that Christ is the Son of God, I am confident. I've come to believe if I'm in Christ, God's love for me. <laughs> Say, well, I believe God's love for them. <laughs> it, sometimes it's hard to believe God's love for you. But he says, for us, believers who are in Christ. There is a definiteness about that as well. And sometimes this can be a struggle if you are more analytically minded and you lean toward truth. It can be challenging to just take God's love and say, oh, certainly it's one of God's attributes. I can name all the attributes for you. He's all powerful. He's omniscient. We'll use the Latin. He's omniscient. He's omnipotent. He is love, certainly. He's omnipresent. And it becomes just a bullet point. One piece of truth among other pieces of truth and you move on. But what John has in mind here in this verse is you so firmly and definitely believing God's love for you, believing that God is love, that what's the consequence in our text? God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God. You become the sort of person who abides in love. We don't want to be the sort of church that is abiding in truth and seeing God's love as just one point among others. It's a fact, of course, but it doesn't reflect itself in how we interact with each other. A church that can proclaim the omnipotence of God and His glory and then not in action love each other because we don't fully understand His love for us becomes like what I had talked with someone just this week about someone who had grown up in a fundamentalist tradition where there was little love, high doctrine, little love. And to this day, this brother told me that when he sees a certain kind of tree, it evokes a negative response in him. He doesn't like that kind of tree because, for whatever reason, that's the sort of tree that these fundamentalist churches had. We don't want to put that kind of taste into people's mouths. We can't be just a church of truth without being also one that practically knowing the truth of God's love loves others. It can't just be a concept and it cannot be abstract for us. We've come to know and believe the love that God has for us. If you're sitting there and you don't know that and you don't believe that or you're struggling to, you need to pray that God will open your eyes to see his love. It's the only way for you to be loving toward others. It is how we balance truth love together. And both have to be definite in our minds. So to borrow John's wording here, I want to address you in conclusion just as little children, or even better, as beloved. Which of these are you satisfied if we don't have much of? Truth or love? Will we soften the truth of the Scripture so we can seem more loving? 
especially as the world encourages us to do that very thing. Will you? Are you willing to lessen the sense of truth in the scriptures, to have a lower view of it as ideologies in the world attack it? Are we willing to do that? No. Are we going to be cruel about it? No, because we have in us a God who is also a God of love. We can't just close the gate because there's error and problems out there, and then we don't want to see anyone who may endanger us. We have to open wide our arms to each other with all our problems, to the world embracing people in love, while at the same time, and it's an impossible balance, being completely committed, never to wavering in our commitment to the sufficiency of Scripture and to doctrinal purity, no compromise. We have to continue to be faith Bible church in a culture that more and more doesn't like that. And even if others are hostile, we have to continue to have a soft heart open toward others. Can it be done? Not by us but by the Holy Spirit of truth and of love who dwells in us.